Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things that you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. As we continue to recognize the accomplishments of outstanding African-American women in our state during Women's History Month, we are delighted to have as our guest this evening, Dr. Alma Adams, U.S. Congressional Representative for the North Carolina 12th District. Representative Adams is an educator and a fierce advocate for education, students, and her beloved HBCUs. Dr. Adams taught art history at Bennett College for 40 years, and I remember her art lectures and her calls for the Bennett Bells to become politically engaged when I was a student at Bennett. She served in the North Carolina General Assembly as a member of the North Carolina House of Representatives for 10 years before becoming a member of the U.S. House of Representatives in November of 2014. As a member of Congress, Representative Adams serves on several committees and in a number of leadership roles. She serves on the Financial Services Committee and the Committee of Education and Labor, and she is the co-founder of the Black Maternal Health Caucus and the founder and co-chair of the Congressional Bipartisan Historically Black Colleges and Universities Caucus. Representative Adams, thank you so much for taking your time and joining us this evening. Well, thank you, Professor. I'm glad to be here and it's good to certainly um, engage with a uh, former Bennett Bell. Absolutely. So we'd like to first start by having you share a little bit about your early life with us. Well, I, um, I uh, am a, uh, a graduate of uh, North Carolina a State University twice. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, walking those uh, ghetto streets, the first uh, generation uh, college student. My mom did domestic work and but she still understood how important education would be in my life. And uh, while she didn't get to finish high school or go to an HBCU, as I was fortunate to do, uh, she, uh, or any CU for that matter, she understood that education would be my pathway. And indeed it has. Uh, after graduating from North Carolina a and I did my PhD uh, at The Ohio State University, but only because of The North Carolina a and and HBCU. Uh, from, uh, from there, I started teaching um, uh, early on after uh, North Carolina A&T getting my master's. I started teaching, actually I started uh, before I got my master's at uh, Palmer Memorial Institute. Uh, we don't talk a lot about those days, but that was really my first teaching experience for that one year. <clears throat> and then I went back to graduate school, got my master's at A&T, and then I started teaching at Bennett College. I taught at Bennett 40 years. Uh, uh, wonderful uh, young women who I had the opportunity to interact with. Uh, and um, then I was able to 
uh, run for the school board. I was the first African-American woman elected to the school board in Greensboro, two-year term. I served uh, one term on the school board and nine uh, years on the, the Greensboro City Council. Uh, after that, I went to the North Carolina House, uh, completing an unexpired term and actually, actually served there 10 terms, which was 20 years. Uh, while, I, while I was doing uh, all of that local and, and state uh, government work, uh, I was still teaching at Bennett and uh, had great, uh, great uh, administrators. I served five presidents and it was wonderful. So now that I'm a member of Congress, I, I came here again six, uh, six years ago. I'm going into my seventh year, my, uh, the beginning of my fourth term. And um, uh, because of what an HBCU did for me, because I spent so much time on an HBCU campus, uh, that's where I'm spending my time pretty much to give back. And I founded the bipartisan HBCU caucus as a result. So, uh, you know, we're moving on um, and uh, doing some great things. It is a bipartisan, which is so important. Uh, if, you're, if you're really smart, you wanna make sure that you have support on both sides of the aisle because in order for something to become law and get signed by the president, it's got to cross both chambers. So it's been a, a, a wonderful um, experience for me to go from school board to Congress. Uh, this poor black girl who walked those ghetto streets of Newark is now able to walk the halls of Congress. And I, I give a lot of thanks to my mom who lived until she was 90, got to see me sworn into each of those offices and, and my HBCU. I'm just grinning over here that, you know, our listening audience can't can't see us, but um, I know much about you, uh, but you've shared some insights that, that I did not know about. So I, we really appreciate that. Um, we're going to talk about your political career, but I'm, I want to ask you about your love of art and your love of teaching. Uh, because that's, you know, that my first introduction to you was through you sharing your love of art with uh, my colleagues and I at, at Bennett College. Well, I can tell you, uh, art has been a part of my life all of my life. Uh, when I was growing up as a little girl, uh, I used to love to draw. As a matter of fact, I can remember uh, being in the sixth grade. Uh, in Baltimore, Maryland. So I moved around a little bit. I started school um, at my early years there. And um, my uh, sixth grade teacher would allow me to stay in during recess and draw on the board because we had science after, uh, we had recess. Uh, uh, and then after recess, we had science. And so um, I'm not sure if the teacher could draw or not, but she uh, like uh, the fact that I was able to do it and I, and I enjoyed doing it. So I would draw the plants and the different parts uh, on, the, on the board. And I, I just, I was just so um, uh, pleased with being able to, to have the opportunity to do that. And, uh, and then early on, even past that, I, I would uh, withdraw and uh, it was just uh, something that I enjoyed doing. So when I went to, went to college, I knew uh, that I wanted to be um, uh, to be a teacher. Uh, I didn't have the best teachers growing up in in in, in high school. I mean, I'm just going to say, at least I didn't think they were. Uh, I went to a school where uh, there were very few people who looked like me, and so the expectations were not um, uh, so great for people who looked like me. 
And um, uh, so, of course, again, I had that influence in my home. My mother saying, you're going to go to college. I always wondered how I was going to do that because didn't, we didn't have any money. But, you know, as we say, the Lord made a way and he certainly has made a way for me. Uh, but uh, I was, um, uh, you know, I went uh, to North Carolina uh, A&T and that was the first time uh, that I had teachers who uh, well, first of all, that looked like me, that's number one. And I mean, you know, that's when you go to an HBC, you're going to see yourself and, you know, you can, you can be what you see. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I, uh, my mentor, uh, the late Eva Hamlin Miller, uh, really took me under her wing and, um, we ended up, uh, even after I graduated, uh, we did many, many things together in terms of artistic, um, uh, uh, innovative things. For example, we both, we started in 19, uh, 1991, uh, the African-American Atelier Gallery, which is still going on in Greensboro, and I'm still a part of that. Uh, but we have a year-round youth program because we wanted to um, actually showcase the works of African-American artists, not just in February, uh, but every day of every year of every month. And so Atelier was formed and we just celebrated this past January, 30 years. Uh, so um, art has just always been something that I enjoy doing, but also uh, making sure that children, young kids uh, could engage in the arts uh, and not have to worry about paying. Uh, because I, I think that if it's truly a, a great experience for children, uh, that they should not be, um, uh, they should should have that opportunity and not not have it because of, of, of money. And so Atelier offers its programs uh, free to kids to, to actually help promote their self-esteem. You know, children love art like they love ice cream, uh, but that's a way for us to learn. Artists are visual storytellers, if you're a visual artist, if you are a musician, all of us, regardless to whether you are a visual or performing artist, uh, you are telling stories. And many of those stories, sometimes we don't want to hear. Uh, many of those stories we don't want to see when we go to museums and galleries and so forth, but they are stories that need to be told. I also understand, uh, Representative Adams, that you are a uh, pretty uh, prolific uh, collector of, uh, of art. Uh, can you kind of, you know, kind of talk about uh, your, your collecting? Well, I have a pretty large collection. Most of the artists in my collection are African-American artists. Um, we have exhibited, for example, at the Atelier Artists from uh, all the way from California. When I was teaching at Bennett, uh, I started a course uh, called um, Doll and Artists. Now, those were back in the days, uh, Irv, that you will probably remember. We didn't have cell phones. Uh, you know, we if, if you wanted to uh, to actually speak to somebody, you had a we had a big box uh, that connected with the phone. That was, you know, and so we were able to actually bring artists into the classroom. On that, that was the speaker phone. You know, right now, if you have a cell phone, you can just put it on speaker yeah. and you can hear everything. But in those days, before we got that innovation, the speaker phone was the box that was connected to the dial phone. Uh, and um, we would dial artists uh, all the way from, to California, to Illinois, and we were able to introduce uh, our students on campus 
uh, to artists without physically bringing them in the classroom because that was a cost. You know, mm -hmm. we're small private school, we didn't have that fund, those funds. But later on, we were able to bring them in. And what I would do was ask each artist to send me five to, to eight slides of their work. And so the students and I would uh, talk about the work, we'd study the work ahead of time, so that when we got the artists on the phone, uh, we were able to ask them questions about their work and we had the work up there. So that was sort of uh, my innovative way of actually bringing that into the classroom. But I've always believed that you, while it's, it's wonderful being in the classroom, you can learn so much from books. But I think you learn more and you're able to, I just believe in what, what I call the OJT, the on the job training. So you get out into the museums and the galleries and I've been to your gallery on your campus. I know all of your art professors over there. I was in school with some of them. Uh, and, um, and I think that's the way we learn. And, and so our, our schools, some of our, some of our schools, HBCUs have some of the greatest uh, collections of, of African-American artists. I remember as a student at A&T, not really having any background in, in African-American artists. And uh, I, I remember um, uh, Eva Miller, who ran the gallery there, the Taylor Art Gallery, uh, actually uh, brought artists, African-American artists into the gallery. And that was my first time actually meeting them and um, didn't really know as a freshman and so, you know, you didn't really understand who they were, but then later on, I got a chance to, to actually get a chance to talk with them myself, Romeo Beard, and uh, we did a New York art seminar, I take my students to New York, we went to his, his studio. Uh, so, uh, you know, I just believe that, and that's one of the things we tried to do, we try to do at the Atelier, to bring artists in so that our community, not only the African-American community learns a little more about uh, our culture, our heritage, but also the at-large community as well. So I probably have a couple hundred pieces, original works in my collection. You see a few behind me. I see. Uh, actually, the sculpture piece um, uh, was done by Eva Hamlin Miller in 19... Uh, 32. That's how old that piece is. Mm. Uh, she was a student at Pratt Institute then in New York. And uh, so I have, I have a couple of pieces, original pieces of hers. And then of course, some of my work is back there on the kind of the floor. So this, this area is kind of my, my, my studio office. <laughs> uh, I think uh, even at, as I've been in Congress, I have um, created uh, just two pieces. Uh, you know, I want to do more. And once I fully retire from my last retirement, I'm going to get back into my studio and work because, you know, we, as I said, we're, we're, we're storytellers, uh, but there's so many messages that we still need to tell. And we're going to be dependent on our visual artists to do that. You know, there's so much going on in the world today. Uh, all of it's not good. And those are stories uh, that need to be captured and told as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Representative Adams, we're going to have to take a quick break in a minute. But right before we do, can you share with our listeners what type of art you create? What's your medium of, of choice? Okay, I am a uh, I'm a printmaker, a silkscreen, uh, and the technical term for silkscreen is serigraphy. So if you were a student in my class, you know serigraphy. 
And so we, you know, I work with different, with screens. It's, it's really screen printing. Most people know it as printing on t-shirts and things like that, but I use it as a fine art because that's really what it is. So I am a printmaker. My specialty is, uh, is uh, subscreen or serigraphy. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. We're going to take a quick break. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we have been talking this hour with Dr. Alma Adams, one of my former professors at Bennett College. She is a United States congressional representative representing the North Carolina 12th Congressional District. We will be right back to hear more about her journey into uh, public service. We hope you can stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your virtual justice spotlight. Every day, a woman dies from preventable causes related to pregnancy and childbirth. Maternal mortality rates in the United States are the worst in the developed world, with 26.4 deaths per 100,000 live births. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 60% of pregnancy-related deaths in America are preventable. The situation is even more dire for Black women who experience disproportionately high rates of complications and death related to pregnancy or childbirth. The causes are complex, but racism is a driving force. Even a Black woman with a college degree is more likely to die from giving birth than a white woman without a high school diploma. Black women are also twice as likely to lose an infant to premature death. Both societal and health system factors contribute to high rates of poor health outcomes and maternal mortality for Black women who are more likely to experience barriers to obtaining quality care and often face racial discrimination throughout their lives. In 2019, Congresswomen Alma Adams and Lauren Underwood launched the Black Maternal Health Caucus. The organization focuses around the goals of elevating the Black maternal health crisis within Congress and advancing policy solutions to improve maternal health outcomes and end disparities. With 53 founding members, the caucus has grown to be one of the largest bipartisan caucuses in Congress, with more than 100 members as of 2020. More information is at blackmaternalhealthcaucus-underwood.house.gov, npr.org, and nih.gov. Virtual justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasia Harris. Thanks for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Alma Adams, United States Congressional Representative representing the North Carolina 12th District. Uh, Representative Adams, so you shared with us your interest in art, your desire to teach. One of the things that you mentioned was that you joined and was elected to the Greensboro School Board in 1984. 
And you were the first African-American to serve on the school board. Can you share with us what led you to decide to uh, become involved in public service in that way? Well, first of all, let me let me just make sure that I'm accurate on that. I, I was the first African-American uh, uh, woman elected to the school board. They had the Blacks on the board, but they were all appointed. And so it, it makes a difference when the community can elect their member as opposed to a member being appointed, but um, no, no disparagement on any of those folks. Mm-hmm. But so I was the first one elected, the first African-American woman elected. And, and my daughter will tell you, who is a, is a principal now in, in Greensboro, a graduate of, of uh, North Carolina A&T as well, but she will tell you that uh, I got involved because of her. Uh, I was back uh, in uh, Greensboro from having uh, been at Ohio State University working on my PhD. They were closing schools in Greensboro. And most of the schools that they were closing were schools in the African-American community and one that my daughter was in. And so uh, I was, as a parent, uh, an angry parent who wanted to make a difference uh, for my children and everyone else's children. Today, I'm an angry grandparent <laughs> because, because uh, we still need uh, to do uh, some things in terms of educational equity uh, in, our, in our schools. So that's kind of what got me uh, started uh, with uh, the school board. And then, listen, you, you'll probably have to go back to uh, something uh, further than um, the, the archives uh, to find information to show you that I kind of created a little disturbance along with the late uh, Reverend uh, Michael King, who served with me on the board. He was 27 years old. And we were very concerned about the, the, the discrepancy uh, and how African-American uh, kids were being uh, treated in terms of discipline. Uh, and so uh, I was chairing the education committee and uh, we, we made a, a number of changes uh, during that time. But at that time, uh, we did not have a pure district system. I was elected by every, uh, well, 89% of the folks in my district in the 10 or 12 precincts. But then the, 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 um, the, uh, the election, the general election, uh, the whole community could come in and vote. And there were 30 other precincts and they just thought uh, Alma Adams was the militant black professor at Bennett College who was always talking about these black kids. So I didn't win that reelection. And the people in the community were very upset about it, nor could we understand why I could win my district and not win. But that system has been corrected and now it's strictly a uh, district. Uh, but it, a- after that, um, I ran for the Greensboro City Council and uh, the community overwhelmingly supported me for that. And uh, there was a lot of issues uh, in District 2, uh, including um, affordable housing needs and so forth. And so I did that uh, for nine years. And then when a seat became available in the North Carolina House, um, well, it actually, it, it didn't become available. I just challenged the member who'd been there for like 18 years or so. And, uh, but three months into that election, he passed away. And so then there was a, a special election and I won the special, special election and I went on to Raleigh and I served those 20 and a half years there. Uh, working on some of the same issues, um, mm-hmm. getting the $3.1 billion bond referendum passed. As a matter of fact, that was my bill if you go back and look at, look at it from the beginning. So 
Uh, from there, uh, you know, Congressman, uh, from former Congressman Mel Watt re retired mm -hmm. from the U.S. House, and, and then I went on to run. And I had six gentlemen running against me, and uh, the districts were kind of uh, dismantled. Districts were drawn from Greensboro and Forsyth County all the way into Mecklenburg. So yeah, I had a, a, a turbulent beginning there, but I did win the election and um, I'm getting tremendous support here in the 12th district and we're continuing. I have four H's, housing, education, healthcare, and hunger. Those are the things that I work on in terms of, of education, higher education, basically HBCUs. Well, let me ask you, you know, what, what are your feelings about the fact that the issues that you started out fighting for are the same issues that you have to fight for today? You know, um, uh, Professor, it is just appalling to me. And, and, and you're exactly right. We're still working on some of the same things. So when you think you've taken some steps forward uh, and you look at what's going on today, uh, you wonder, what happened to all of the progress that we've made. If you remember uh, North Carolina in 2006, I was in the house. I had worked for 10 years to increase the state's minimum wage. You know, I hate to even say that word, man. We need a living wage, but it was $5.50 an hour. Uh, I was only able to get a $1 increase. We didn't, um, it wasn't, um, you know, we didn't, it, you couldn't, in other words, it, it wasn't going to go any further. So we were able to get $1 and then the federal government came in and uh, put, put a little more on it. So it became $7.25. That's where it is still today. And, you know, working hard is not enough if you don't make enough. Mm -hmm. People are just not making enough. And uh, that was one of the bills that we were passing out today that we passed out of the Education and Labor uh, Committee today under um, Chairman Bobby Scott. But yeah, it's, it's you know, it's kind of heartbreaking, um, I, uh, uh, um, Brother John, I've got to tell you, because you, we really thought we had moved some things out of the way, we could work on the next thing, but it seems as though we're going back. Why are we still voting, uh, working on voting rights? Yeah. What, what, you know what I'm saying? I mean, why is it that Black folks, okay, we, we get the Voting Rights Act, and now they're saying, and we passed that, go back, we passed that, you know your history, and look at what's happening now. We said, well, we, you got to um, reauthorize it. Why do you have to reauthorize stuff for Black folks? Why wasn't it just, you know, when, when it passed, it should have been passed. So maybe people said, well, we're going to see how the Black folks uh, act with this. They don't act right, we're going to take it back. But it's really disheartening to see that. But I'm happy that I'm in a place and a position right now um, in, in the Congress to continue to, uh, to, to work on these, these, um, these uh, issues uh, with the Congressional uh, Black Caucus, as well as the Congressional Bipartisan HBCU Caucus. Now, you, you, you talked about the uh, Voting Rights Act and uh, how that continues to be an issue. And I understand that at this very moment, uh, a congressional committee has been uh, dealing uh, with that and is preparing to uh, send that over to uh, the Senate. Uh, what, what, uh, what do you see uh, going forward uh, with, uh, with that legislation? Well, I, I just don't see how we, we can't pass that. We should pass it. 
you know, I, I think about um, the late great uh, good friend of, of, of ours, uh, John Lewis, uh, who talked about voting rights as a sacred. It, it is it is a sacred right, uh, and 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 it shouldn't be taken away. Um, so it, the fact that we you know we have the um, uh, we have the bill named uh, for John, actually, uh, who took a lot of beatings and uh, mm -hmm. for our right to, to, to vote. Uh, even as a young man, uh, 19, 20 years old, getting beat up on that on that Pettus Bridge. Uh, and so I think it's going, you know, we certainly, we, we passed it out of the house. Uh, we're going to have to um, and I think uh, I know that our president, President Biden, is certainly in full support. Uh, we would like to, I think we need to have a bipartisan vote. We'd like to, but, you know, if we have to do it uh, through reconciliation and just pass it out. But we, we still will be short, I think, over there in the Senate because of the, the nature of this bill. But um, I think if the pressure continues to come, uh, from the public, um, uh, people are realizing again that this is a sacred right and that it is something that we not only need to do, but that we have to do, especially as you look at all that's going on. There are 47 states, I understand right now, including North Carolina, uh, doing some really destructive things, uh, trying to prevent. We should be passing laws that will make uh, voting easier. Mm -hmm. uh, but instead, we are passing laws uh, to make it more difficult. And I just think it's, you know, people, I, I, you know, I would just say that obviously people who are doing this are very, very much afraid. Uh, when, you know, many years ago, we used to say that the, the, the nation is browning. Well, that's true. The nation is pretty much all the way brown. And it, and, and it really disturbs, I think, some people. It makes them really nervous. And they want to uh, control uh, what people uh, what people can do, what poor people can do. To say we're going to ban voting on Sunday, uh, why are you going to do that? Because you know a lot of African Americans with our uh, souls to the polls. Well, we can take our souls to the polls on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and that's what we'll do if they put that in place. So yeah, it's it's a terrible thing to even think about. Uh, but it's something that we've got to keep uh, in front of us uh, so that uh, we, we maintain our right. Uh, this is a constitutional right as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Representative, you so you mentioned your four H's and, and one of the H's represents uh, health care. And you are the one of the co-founders or a co-founder of the Black Maternal Health Caucus. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you all are doing in that caucus and why it's so important that there is um, a, a body that is focusing specifically on black maternal health. Well, thank you very much for, for that question. You know, black uh, maternal health uh, has been a problem for a while. And of course now it's, be, uh, it's become, it, it, we're shedding a lot more light on it, particularly as it, it you know, with this pandemic as well. Uh, but we uh, formed the um, black maternal health caucus uh, because uh, we saw a need, we saw more black women, and it's all it's all it's all documented. You know, you can say do the do the fact check. Um, uh, tend to uh, die giving birth, and 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 and, and babies are dying as well. 
Uh, and there are lots of uh, reasons for it shouldn't be. But what we decided to do was to put together through the um, Black Maternal Health Caucus, the Black Maternal Health Momnibus. And uh, this Momnibus Act of 2021, we, we started it in 2020, now has uh, a package of 12 bills that will uh, support, uh, with the support of, of a number of, uh, of coalition uh, folks, such as health providers, Black mothers, policymakers, researchers, researchers, activists, uh, advocates. Uh, and so we have a, a collaborative, targeted, timely set of policies that we think will improve uh, maternal health outcomes for Black pregnant and postpartum uh, individuals, including those who have been victims in terms of the COVID pandemic. Now, uh, in, in this mission began actually back in 2018. Uh, Senator, former Senator Kamala Harris, who's now Vice President, and I worked on the Black Mamas uh, Matter Alliance to introduce uh, a resolution that would actually honor the, uh, the first uh, Black Maternal Health Week. And we had a bill and it was called the Maternal Care Act. And so it all kind of resolved, began there. Uh, my co-chair in, 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 in putting this caucus together uh, is a young representative uh, out of, um, uh, out of uh, Illinois and uh, Lauren Underwood, she's a nurse actually by training, the, the youngest African-American uh, in the US House. But this was a personal issue for me. And it started with my daughter, uh, Janelle, who became a victim, uh, a physician overlooking the complaints. You know, they, they sometimes uh, dismiss black women who say they have pain and that kind of thing. And that's what they did with her. Uh, but um, since we, um, uh, and, and so Lauren had a friend who, who, who died, but we, we, we have found that there have been, there's so many inequities as it relates to our healthcare system. Uh, she's not only, my daughter's not only a mommy to my two amazing grandchildren by she and Ty, her husband, she's a principal to all the students at, at the school that she um, serves in Greensboro, Needy Fork. But so while this was a personal issue for me, it's one that so many uh, women uh, battle sadly, sadly, because this should be the, 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 a joyful time of your life. So uh, I said from the beginning of the pandemic that this is a crisis within a crisis. So uh, we are really using these 12 separate bills uh, to uh, help us to um, uh, actually address many of the uh, the issues, some of the social determinants of health, uh, community-based organizations trying to diversify the uh, perinatal workforce uh, to improve the data collection and, and all these other things that we think uh, will actually improve the outcomes for, uh, for uh, mommies that look like you and me. So even, even in this particular uh, bill, we have uh, it focuses on environmental justice and that those were we had three new bills initially we started with nine and then we added uh, three others one to deal with environmental justice even one that deals with uh, women who are in prison uh, so you know we 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 found that during COVID for example uh, over what was it something like 64,000 women that we know of that we know of contracted the uh, coronavirus while pregnant and so when you're not able to get out to see your doctors and all these other kinds of things, when you're having to deliver maybe alone, you know, with COVID, you know, you couldn't have visitors in. 
So we added uh, the Maternal Health Pandemic Response Act and the Maternal Vaccination Act, because again, we want people to get uh, vaccinated and so forth. I had a bill in the package. I have a bill called the Kira Johnson Act, and I introduced it, uh, reintroduced it a couple of weeks ago. In 2016, Kira went into a hospital, checked in with her husband to give birth to their second son. Uh, she was an entrepreneur. She traveled the world. She was a mother of one healthy boy already. Uh, and so uh, she didn't get out of the hospital alive. She died 12 hours of neglect after uh, severe hemorrhaging right there in the hospital. And so her husband is out advocating now and so forth. He's raising the two boys. And so, uh, you know, we have many instances uh, like that and Kira deserved better. And so did all of these other women out here. So uh, that's what we're trying to do uh, through, with the, through the Black Maternal Health Corps. It has gotten a tremendous amount of visibility uh, across this country. And I'm just glad, and people just didn't know. You don't think about people dying uh, doing uh, childbirth. And it, a lot of the doctors are not paying attention to uh, to women who look like us. Oh, well, you know, uh, go home and take an aspirin or go lie down. That's kind of what they told my daughter. But anyway, uh, we've gotten, this is uh, a bipartisan issue. Uh, and uh, it's bicameral. We have folks in the Senate, as I said before, Senator uh, Cory Booker has sort of taken up the slot for uh, Senator Har former Senator Harris, and uh, he's working with us uh, on all of uh, on all of these bills. So uh, racism is still alive and well, and uh, our mothers are seeing this as well. And so we're just trying to make a difference for them and for the babies, because uh, no mother should black mother any mother for that matter should, should leave the hospital without their baby. Very important uh, issue that uh, has confronted us for a long time. And uh, But anyway, we're gonna have to take our break uh, right now. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Uh, we, we are on WNCU 90.7 uh, FM and we're talking with uh, the Honorable uh, Representative uh, Alma uh, Adams from the uh, 12th Congressional District uh, here in uh, in North Carolina, a longtime warrior uh, in the uh, political arena, uh, both in uh, North Carolina and for uh, North Carolina. So we're going to take our break. want you to uh, stay with us and we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening.
Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle uh, review where we are completing our discussion with uh, Representative uh, Alma Adams, uh, an educator uh, from way back, a politician from way back, uh, a hat collector, an art collector, uh, clearly a uh, woman of her times uh, who has uh, been a leader uh, for the uh, Greensboro uh, community and for uh, North Carolina, and she's still waging the uh, the battle. So let me just, just raise this uh, quick question with you, and I know you don't probably have a quick answer to it, but uh, on January 6th, uh, you were involved in the first insurrection that has occurred in uh, United States history in Washington, uh, D.C. Not that that was the first effort to overthrow political power in this, uh, in this country, but can you kind of talk to us about your feelings about that and the impact that that has had on you personally and, uh, and politically? Well, you know, uh, Irvin, I, I still think about that day. Um, I was um, in Washington. Uh, I've tried to be there to take all of my votes, even though, you know, we have another system for voting if you can't possibly be there. And uh, this was so important as we uh, were declaring valid this election. And uh, we were required as a body uh, to, to vote to certify. And that was my reason for being there. I typically have, uh, when I'm there since COVID, uh, just three staffers with me, my chief, my legislative director, and one of my LAs who also drives me. And uh, I was scheduled to be, um, uh, to be in the gallery. And uh, I went over to the building, uh, to the Capitol. I saw all of the protesters. I mean, it's still very vivid. And it was a very emotional experience, even though I didn't get in that building. I was on my way in the building and they stopped me and said that um, they were getting, they were locking the building. So I needed to take another entrance. And when I attempted to do that, to get out of my car to take another uh, entrance, the uh, officer stopped me. And matter of fact, I thought he was opening the door for me, but he was closed, he was keeping it closed. He says, no, he said, the um, uh, protesters have gotten their way into the building. So uh, you really need to try to go take another route. You can go in through the tunnel. And I said, uh, well, okay. I think at that time, uh, the, the officers on the outside had no real sense of all that mm -hmm. was going on in there. I know I didn't, even though I had my phone on, I could see the floor. I saw the, C the secret service come in and take uh, uh, Vice President Pence out and Pelosi. I looked back and I saw all of the protesters now beginning to, to um, emerge on, on the building. Because when I first, when we first pulled up, everybody was standing back and they weren't even actually on the, on the paved portion. Mm -hmm. uh, but something, so I told my, the young man that was driving me, I said, we'll go back to the, to the office. And um, uh, as we crossed the street off of the, um, off of the, off of the, the, um, the square there, I said, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling this. 
And uh, I, I'm going to give up my 15 minutes or whatever it was that uh, Speaker Pelosi had given me to sit in the gallery to watch. Uh, we couldn't be on the floor unless your state was up for, unless your state was being, was one of those states that they were objecting to, and North Carolina was not. Uh, so but just to observe from being inside, uh, that was really the desire that I had. So I went back to my office. The building was quiet in, in, in Rayburn where my office is. Uh, but, I, you know, I was really feeling something. But something told me I didn't need to go in there. Mm -hmm. So I went to my office and uh, then we got all of the words and the sirens started going off, you know, uh, shelter in place and so forth. I was, that was a very emotional meeting, uh, moment for me. My cell phone, I got all kinds of texts, people asking me if I was okay. We had the TVs on. That was the first time that those of us in there could really see what was going on. If you weren't actually in the Capitol, in the building, and even if you were in the Capitol and you were in other places, you still couldn't see all of the disruption and the destruction and so forth that was going on. But the public, because they had the cameras and you could see it. And I'm saying, well, this is why people are at texting me, asking me, am I okay? Is my staff okay? And my staff was there. And they're young folks, you know. So I feel very responsible for them. And uh, I was, you know, trying to trying to hold back. And they, they said, well, Congressman, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I said, okay, we're going to lock all the doors, uh, which they instructed us to do. Let's turn the lights out. Let's not talk and uh, turn the volume down on the team because we didn't know who would be roaming where and what was really uh, going on, even in even in my building. And then shortly after that, security came and uh, took, took, took me to another site. Uh, but it was a very um, emotionally disruptive time. Uh, I still remember it. Um, and, and I remember the officer. And I, since then, I've seen the officer who shut my door back and wouldn't let me out. And I asked him at that time, because I was there last week and I said, did you really know when you told me I couldn't, that you all had locked this door, what was going on? He said, I did not. I said, I couldn't think after I thought about it, I, I realized that you probably didn't know or you would have told me not to try to get in the building another way you would have told me you need to go and shelter someplace, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I thanked him, uh, you know, at the time. And but like I said, it's, it, you can call it women's intuition or what. But something told me, you know what, give up that 15 because they only gave you about 15 or 20 minutes so because a lot of people wanted to just observe. Um, but that was a day that I will never forget. Um, and then when we went into the area where they were taking all of the members and so forth to have some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, and we were all, it was a, it was a big room, but when you, you're talking about 400 people, it's a lot of people in there. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so to not have masks on and those kinds of things where some of the colleagues were just endangering other people, uh, to me was just absolutely insensitive. But that whole thing, and then I think a lot of people are still not, matter of fact, they're not over it. Uh, a lot of the, the officers, I listened to them, they were just uh, beat down and, and uh, they weren't prepared. And then it appeared that there was some inside um, uh, support. I mean, it's pretty obvious that some folks um, helped, uh, helped this thing along. But you know, words matter. 
And um, I think uh, we certainly saw that and, and they've, they've arrested so many people and I'm just hoping that uh, people are brought to justice. Uh, we, we had uh, officers killed, maimed, uh, people lost limbs, eyes, those kinds of things. And uh, there, it, it was just, you know, so, but we held on to our democracy. I remember talking to my daughter and she said, well, mom, are you all right? Are you, and I said, yeah, I'm good. And I said, we'll be going back in to vote uh, in a couple of hours after this. She said, you're going back in there. <laughs> she said, mom, you, are you going? I said, we've got, I said, Janelle, we, we did not finish what we came here to do. And so we went back in, you know, you step over glass, all those kinds of things. We went back in and we voted. Uh, and um, got that process done because actually what, what these folks who came in there to, uh, wanted to do was to stop the certification uh, and to disrupt democracy and interrupt it. And so uh, I think that was the, the best thing for us to do. It was the most courageous thing for us to do. And we, we had to do it uh, for our country and, and, and for the citizens who uh, went out and voted and and that kind of thing. So uh, I was glad to a little nervous going back in, but you know we we were you know we got it done and and I was really grateful for that. Yeah, such a a challenging, unexpected event that happened, and it it raises in my mind how do you stay motivated? And you know, Irv had asked you the question about you know, all this time that you've been in public service. And you, as you mentioned, you're starting your seventh year as a member of Congress and some of the same issues that you came in to the house uh, advocating for, you're still having to advocate for today. And there are always challenges and setbacks. Can you share with us how you stay motivated and how you stay in the game knowing that there are, that there's unfinished finished business that has to be taken care of? Uh, you know what, uh, April, I have always been <clears throat> challenged by challenge. Uh, from my early days uh, uh, on the school board and all of that. And I guess I got, I, I kind of got some of that from my mother. Uh, you know, um, uh, you, 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 we all fall down, but it's about getting up. And I tell folks, you know, you fall on your back, uh, on, if you fall down, just roll over on your back so you can look up, you can look up, you can get up. So, you know, I, the, the challenge of, of trying to correct inequities and things that are wrong uh, has sort of been a guiding principle for me uh, throughout my lifetime. And um, it's what I've taken with me in, in every office that I've served. Uh, it's been the challenge, even as a teacher, uh, having young people to come in who may not be fully prepared uh, to do college work, but then to work with them to get them. So you know why? Because I was that 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 student. I was not fully prepared to do college work when I left Westside High School in Newark, New Jersey, and came to North Carolina A and T. But they made a committed investment in me. They saw something, they molded and shaped me into what they knew I could become. Uh, they knew that they could provide the resources and they did that. So I, that's, those are the things that keep me motivated. But, but more than that, to start something and be able to see it finished. 
there's so many things, you know, I go back to some of the bills that uh, we filed in, in the North Carolina House, uh, the um, university equity bill, which I put together to really help HBCUs, ultimately it became the bond referendum that supported all of our schools in the university system. I don't care about other people getting in on it as long as we made sure that, that my HBCUs got their share. And so uh, we were able to do that. Um, and so I think when you, when you can see the results of your work, uh, then um, that is, but the thing about, thing what I the thing that I tell people the most uh, is that, you know, you're not going to solve all of the problems. You don't have all of the answers. But the people that I represent and that I've always represented, uh, I want them to know that if you bring your, your, your issue and your problem to me, I, I may not be able to solve it, but you're gonna know that I'm gonna work to, to do that. And I think that's what people want to know. I, I've had people to call me and says, well, we didn't quite get that done, but I appreciate the fact that you tried. And, and that's, I think, what we, what we have to do. And so that could, so we didn't get it done before, we're gonna keep working on it. We didn't get that minimum wage done. It wasn't in the rescue package, but we got some great things in that package that will help people. But we've, we still have that on the front burner and we're gonna to continue to work on it because again, like I said, working hard is not enough if you don't make enough. And we just can't continue to uh, want to, to see people live in poverty and below the poverty line, because you're talking about 15,000, what is it, $15,400 a, a, a year, who in the world, you know, I mean, so we shouldn't be expecting that. Uh, so, you know, those are the things that, that motivate me, you know, and, uh, I, and, and, the, and the citizens who continue to support the work that we do, um, I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity. The Lord has brought me from a mighty long way um, he has allowed me to, to serve in not only uh, local, but uh, local, state, and now federal government. And uh, just think about it. A poor Black girl, uh, parents uh, didn't get out of high school. We didn't have any money. Uh, but today, uh, after walking those ghetto streets, I'm able to walk the halls of Congress. Now, how unbelievable, how believable is that? I mean, you know, just think about it. Um, we, we, we got uh, the Futures Act passed. Uh, it was my bill. A lot of folks, president uh, and the um, former president signed it. I will give him credit for it. Well, it came through and he had to sign it really. Uh, and it was uh, $255 million for our, for our uh, HBCUs and minority serving institutions, 86 million uh, permanent dollars for HBCUs. So that means we don't have to go back every year or every two years when the budget and ask for that money. It is permanent funding. Uh, we've also done, uh, we, we've had a number of other pieces of legislation to pass that have truly benefited uh, our students. I wanna get some debt relief. Uh, for students with uh, all of this debt. You should be able to come out of your parents' basement or wherever you're living, uh, make a way for yourself, because that's why we send our kids to school, right? We want them to have a better life uh, than we had. And we don't, and if you're all, if you're saddled uh, with debt and student, these interest rates are higher than the interest rates uh, for purchasing a home. Purchasing and all that—that that is absolutely ridiculous. You know, we go in and we support 
um, uh, we support Wall Street. So I think we need to provide some support on Main Street uh, and help these students. So we're working on that. I have asked the president uh, for $50,000 uh, uh, of relief for, uh, for every student. Uh, I'm not sure what we're gonna end up with, but we're gonna keep pushing on that uh, because I think that that will prepare them, uh, these young, and, they, and you know what? The young people who come out become old people still paying these debts. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think we, we can do something about it. Um, and I believe that, you know, we so we've got a lot of people in the Congress uh, working on that because it is an issue that uh, really confronts us each and every day. And of course, the pandemic has not made it any easier. Well, Representative Adams, thank you so much for taking time to share your story and and the hard work that you're that you're doing, uh, that you have done, you continue to do, and for being an inspiration to so many of us. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but but we have got to have you back on the show. You have been someone we've been trying to get on the show for for a minute, so we are um, just delighted that you were able to to spend this time with us. And I'm sure our listening audience really appreciates learning um, even more about you. Well, thank you very much, uh, um, uh, Professor Dawson. Uh, uh, we, we are so proud of you. Uh, you are certainly an example of the kind of young women that uh, we uh, mold and shape in our HBCUs and more specifically at Bennett College. So. Uh, I am uh, I'm just so pleased to have this opportunity, to have had this opportunity to uh, meet with you and to chat with you. And yes, please invite me back uh, and I'll be happy to, uh, to oblige. It's been a, a wonderful um, opportunity to talk to you. And, and uh, listen, keep on flying, Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And as always, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.